We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. When I'm walking down a street in a city or town, after only a small amount of time, I stop seeing the buildings as individual objects, and eventually they all just become the street. That might be because the majority of buildings kind of belong to each other. Then every so often, I'll see a building that really stands out, and I'll ask myself, what were they thinking when they designed that? Throughout history, there have been theories that were the basis for how buildings were designed. These theories have affected the size of offices, shape of classrooms, the arrangement of structure, the look of windows, and everything in between. While some of these theories brought about revolutionary change in the construction industry, others were not widely accepted. Those less accepted buildings either stand out as the last of their theoretical lineage, or they just don't work. In 2017, the Australian Institute of Architects awarded Melbourne-based architect Peter Elliott with the gold medal, which is the Institute's highest honour. As part of his gold medal tour, he told younger architects to let the theory come later. Some architects were taken aback by this because they'd spent so much time studying how to embed design theory into their work. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia to tell us what they think about the use of theory in architecture. There are struggles between theoretical and practical people in multiple industries. Theoretical people come up with new ways of thinking, and then practical people try to make these theories work. The same is also true in architecture. Some things that may look good on paper might not translate exactly how you think in the real world. At the end of the day, architects are designing for things to be built in the real world with real implications. If this isn't considered, then things can go wrong in many ways down the road. Here, Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Planning tells us why he thinks learning your craft is indispensable for an architect. I'm not, I'm not so sure about the proposition that let the theory come later. I don't think we need to be theoretical to the exclusion of practice, but one of the things that you have to learn is learn your craft as an architect. And so that means having a broad intellectual framework Equally, it means being conversant with different building types, different places in the city, different client groups. Uh, it means learning about construction and the like. I think you need to advance all of them and it's often a question of circumstance. So certainly in our case, we didn't get to build as much as we could have early in our career and I think that that, and I suspect that that's happening to uh, a number of practices. And that is actually, uh, that holds you back. I think it's, you've got to learn how to build, you've got to learn what's important, you've got to do things and get them right, get them wrong, learn how to do them better from evaluating the work that you've done. But I don't think you do that without a theoretical framework. So from my point of view, I was lucky I, um, a few years after practice, actually a little bit like um, Peter had been involved in community groups, in protests and the like, uh, he about housing, uh, me about the the form of the city about terrible public projects like the monorail. I was lucky to go overseas and study uh, a course which was a part-time master's while working in, in Paris called Urban Architecture. And so that certainly gave me not just a theoretical framework, but having graduated and worked in Sydney on uh, Darling Harbour, it was obvious that no one knew anything about how to make the city. Darling Harbour, the complete lack of know-how was absolutely startling and disheartening. 
and I was very pessimistic after you know two or three years working in Sydney and I've, what my masters gave me was a longer view and that was a source of optimism thinking about the city not just in the short-term political cycles and the sort of trash building but thinking about the city over decades over centuries and thinking of building a culture of city making so that was something which I did learn early. Some of my professors, all the best professors, not only had a theoretical basis, they were experienced teachers and practitioners. And I think that model of teaching, of writing, of giving public lectures, of critiquing while practicing is indispensable for an architect. And I don't think you can be a rounded architect unless you do all of those things. That was Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Planning, based in Sydney. Introducing a very exciting conceptual idea to an architecture project can sometimes be the idea that gets the project built. Delivering on that proposal is one of the biggest challenges that an architecture team will face. This includes what the architect has designed, what the engineers have specified, and what the builders have priced. The more difficult the concept, the more difficult the outcome is to achieve. Kylie Shunans from Fratel Group explains how the brief and collaboration with the whole project team takes priority for them over theory. I think that every project has to have a different design approach. I think that you need to start each project with a really robust and strong brief. And so that brief will then guide and define the built form outcome. But you shouldn't get so fixated when early on in architecture on this theory is the only way to go because you'll never develop and grow as an architect and also I think people our our industry every industry is evolving so quickly and constantly that being ready and willing to change is just a necessary part of architecture these days and so you need to be willing to listen to other people's ideas and particularly those of your client (laughs) because if you don't listen to the ideas of your client you're not going to have a successful project. I think also working as a team everyone will, will come in with their own ideas and intentions into a project and everyone's ideas are just as valid as yours so you shouldn't be thinking that just because I'm the architect and there's other people that are here that their ideas aren't as, as valid as mine. The way that really strong projects happen and come to fruition is that it, it's a team collaboration. And teams on projects are getting bigger and bigger these days as build form is getting more and more complex. And it's impossible as an architect to know everything you're ever going to need to know about that building. You rely on so many other people to be bringing input into designs that you have to be able to listen to others to be able to come up with a really effective and robust design response. That was Kylie Shunans from Fratel Group in WA. An architect might use concepts and theories to create something new and useful for the community. But successful projects that have been built previously also serve as good evidence for a building's design. 
Rod Simpson, the Environmental Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission, draws our attention to the importance of precedence above theory and how the Australian Institute of Architects Code of Ethics highlights what an architect's priorities should be. So I better start off with a confession. I've never really understood what architectural theory is meant to be. And the reason I say that is that I'm not sure that it's necessary. I think understanding history, understanding the politics, understanding the particular conditions which have produced a piece of architecture or a particular urban condition is perhaps more the question. And that becomes an interesting question because I think as architects and for that matter as planners we rely very, very, very heavily on precedence. And when we look at something as a precedent which we then either assimilate or refer to or attempt to replicate in some way, I think it's dangerous territory. It's dangerous territory because it's not that it's so much disrespectful, but it, it really is important then to understand what were the particular conditions that gave rise to that building and what is it that made that building valued, not so much in terms of the architectural press or the way that it's been represented and um, be emerged to be something that is seen as a precedent, but rather why, what brought it about in, in the first instance. And so theory I've never really felt comfortable with because I do feel that we can distinguish theory from, as I've just pointed out, an understanding of the particular conditions which have brought about a piece of architecture. And so then in terms of robust theoretical frameworks, I would counterpose the idea of an ethos, and for that matter, the ethics of architecture, which I think is a perhaps more direct and simpler starting point and I would direct everyone to the code of ethics of the Institute of Architects which actually has as its first principle that although we may be acting in the interest of a client our ultimate responsibility is to the public um, that we're harnessing resources we're actually building something that may have some sort of presence in the public domain but we may also of course be building something that then generates a new pattern of living or some particular desirable way of thinking or living, that's, that's the highest aspiration for architecture, I think, to, to give back to the public whilst at the same time accommodating whatever the activity is in a beautiful way that is absolutely uplifting for humans. That was Rod Simpson, the Environment Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission. As an architect is developing their ideas for a project, they can draw on lots of information, past precedents, conceptual theories or technical diagrams to illustrate what they want to do. This information helps them illustrate how their idea will work as it's often hard to describe. Rob McGoran from MGS Architects, who's worked with Peter Elliott in the past, tells us about the importance of using narrative to develop evidence-based ideas for a project. I've got a lot of respect for Peter. I've worked closely with him and seen how he operates, seen how he operates uh, with his work uh, through his contribution to our master plan work at Monash University where he was on the design advisory panel there. And there's a lot of wisdom in what he says, I think. For us, we try and help young practitioners learn the importance of narrative. Being able to tell a story about your project that demonstrates an understanding of the place, 
the people you're designing for or the physical context in which it's sitting as well as the cultural, social context in which it's sitting. That you have strong evidence behind your decision making and that you are taking people through in an orderly way that understanding of we get the place, we get the people, we get the program, we've looked at the best evidence available that should inform uh, that having regard for those things. We've looked at these sorts of options and this is where we've landed uh, on that. I think to get that a set of tactics and methodologies for how you can not only build your own thinking around work with robustness without chasing down a theory before you have a project is something that I would agree with Peter on that it's it's getting that right in the first instance because as you are then testing your work through those sorts of lenses you can develop attitudes etc with that are anchored in in the first instance dealing with those essential issues you know once you've uh, landed those uh, then I think the position you're taking in terms of the poetry or expression that you're bringing to the work um, and the attitude to the work is another layer rather than the only layer for the work. That was Rob McGowan from MGS Architects based in Melbourne. After an architect has quite a number of projects in their portfolio, they might notice the same issues come up for their clients. These issues might form the basis of the early use of some design outcomes that give their projects a similar look and feel. Northern Territory-based architect Jo Rees tells us about how some of her theories have been implemented in her work to benefit her clients. I do a lot of renovating existing buildings, which I think is a very valuable, valid component of architecture. So we're not always knocking old stuff down and building new, we're working with existing buildings. So what I try to establish with each building is patterns that are worthy of continuing and elaborate on those and patterns that are less successful and modify those to be more successful. So a very simple example that that most people will understand, maybe not all around the country, but certainly in the tropics, is if you have an elevated house, so often a metal box on skinny legs, the skinny legs of usually steel, sometimes concrete, are inset approximately half a metre from the outside wall frame. So that inset pattern is something that I like to adhere to. I don't like to push out the external walls to that full perimeter of the building. You get a little bit of shading, you get a material difference because there'll often be a change in materials, whether it's old and new, whether it's a different type of material or a different type of pattern on the metal sheeting, for example. So for me, those tiny parts of the way you look at a building are really important and they're patterns and people's lifestyle or their working culture, they're patterns that we can work with and really make a big difference, I think. This may seem like all of her projects will have the same solutions built into the design, but there is room for development. So if we go to the, another part of that um, question and related ideas, and that's about what happens when you 
get fixated on a particular aesthetic and all of your projects have to look like architect A, Z or whatever your name is, then I think you lock yourself into a particular way of thinking and responding to the detriment of your growth and expansion in the future. And maybe that's okay for some people, but I don't think that it really helps this idea of refinement and evolution. So I think it's nice to have consistent themes, but to be flexible with them is probably a better way of dealing with it. And that idea of robust theory is that you take an idea and you expand on it in different ways, like sort of experiments, if you like, rather than fixated on a particular end product. That was Joe Rees from Ajara Architects based in the Northern Territory. The implementation of a design theory in a young practice might seem like they're putting the cart before the horse, but many theories are less about aesthetics and more practical than people think. Directors Amelia Borg, Nicholas Braun, Jane Court and Timothy Moore talk about the importance of building and how they started working together with a shared conceptual framework and how this has influenced their design process. I think he probably meant that it's important for emerging architects to push really hard to get projects built early in their careers, which I would agree with. Yeah, you really need to work against a lot of really difficult conditions to actually get a project built. But in terms of there being, I guess, such a strict divide or dichotomy between theory and built work, I think we would probably say that our approach is to have a bit more of a symbiotic relationship between those two things. And I think we've often used much smaller projects to help, um, I guess, develop those more conceptual ideas at an early um, stage in our practice. So we've used a lot of smaller projects in our early sort of days of our practice to sort of develop what our, what our kind of underpinning ideas are. And then that's been a really good framework for us to build upon when we ha- are now starting to build much larger Um, buildings and projects. Symbiotic relationship. (laughs) I'd also add, I I suppose the way I see siblings practice is that we actually formed as a collective on a conceptual framework. So from our very inception, we had a way of practicing that was, you know, very strong around collective practice, diversity, the agency of all people involved in the design process and bottom-up mixed with top-down. And I think we've been quite successful in maintaining that conceptual framework throughout the development of our career. And sometimes it is hard to try and um, do things in a non-conventional way, but I think that's one of our strengths. And from that exploration, I think there's been some, um, yeah, really interesting outcomes emerge and and also just a more um, holistic way of practising in general. It's important just to distinguish between theory and concept because theory is often about talking about things, but a concept is having an idea and then a plan to carry out that idea, which is within building itself. So I think, uh, sure, talking about things is, is not enough, but you need a plan and then to be able to build that. But I understand the intention of the quote, which is when uh, someone experiences a building, they don't often see theory. And so therefore it's important to consider everything else that makes a good building beyond the theory itself. I think concepts drive every project that sibling does. Um, It's important to have an idea but a plan to realise that idea and also to communicate your intentions to the client. 
I guess one project I could talk about relating to, I guess, concept, um, which is important, is one of Sibling's early projects, On Off, which was looking at how to create a space where you have no um, connection to Wi-Fi. So if you walked into that space, um, your phone would not work. And so we did a lot of research around what type of architectures, what type of materials could make a space where your mobile phone wouldn't work. We succeeded. It, lo it looked like, I guess, a mirrored box on the outside with a, a red uh, uh, framed grid. But when you walked inside, your mobile phone would stop working. I don't think it was important that people understood all the theoretical ideas around the consequences of technology, um, but also there's a space, just a spatial experience of a joy of sitting in a space with your mobile phone not working, and that's enough for us. So, you know, people experience ideas, concepts, and theories at all different levels, but it's actually the spatial consequences which are really important in the end because yeah, not everyone sees theory. And I think in our practice and projects like on off, they begin to start to influence other projects that we then begin to fold these ideas and I guess theories into into some larger ideas. And I guess there's been a couple of streams in our practice and I guess technology and the social and then um, some of the work around new agency as well. I guess there's a lot of research and theory that go into I guess these projects. That was Amelia Borg, Nicholas Braun, Jane Court and Timothy Moore from Sibling Architects based in Melbourne. Getting buildings built that achieve some very simple architectural outcomes should be one of the first concerns of an architect. Not because big ideas and theories are bad, but because delivering them could be beyond what is called for in the brief. Justin Carrier and Stephen Posmus tell us about how theory helps you understand architectural thought, but when you start your own firm, other priorities start to take over. I think... Um in the question both are really important I think while you're a student you have the time to really explore and to read and to to try and grapple with, with kind of conceptual uh, strategies and different theories and a real kind of diversity of thought it's a bit like you know um, learning an instrument like when you're young you've got the time to practice and and to get those skills so I think being a student is really an important opportunity to to do that and to be equipped but certainly when you, when you kind of start to practice and you have a whole different kind of sets of parameters and, and pragmatical responsibilities to, to, to meet, yeah, I think Peter's advice is, is really pertinent. And I think for us, it's, it's a case of actually seeing work and as an opportunity to kind of scaffold our ideas. So um, sort of just bit by bit, we kind of realise that really theories and, and conceptual strategies need to be refined and tested so if we just take each project and then maybe do two or three kind of ideas and really see that as being a way of, of of testing it and then sometimes they fall away sometimes they become strengthened or returned in different projects but i think the, the question is yeah sort of a little bit to be a little bit more relaxed about it and i think that's probably good advice and it's a bit of both but uh, certainly I mean, we really try to have a clear conceptual strategy when, when we work, but kind of distill it in such a way that the client really understands um, and is really clear that this is the trajectory that we want to go with the project. Because even just practically, we find that that helps to make decisions quite efficiently. And also the, the client knows where we're coming from and has got a bit of confidence to know that we're sort of mm. taking in a particular direction. But yeah, there's certainly... A sort of a bit of a balance as to how explicit you are about the breadth of it it's kind of underlying but uh, yeah. I mean I think Perth's a 
pretty difficult space to work in you know it's just sort of bottom dollar developer driven sort of projects and mm-hmm. often you know there's, there's no sort of interest in sort of theoretical sort of discourse and, and ideas mm-hmm. and concepts and I think as a young practice you know your first sort of thing is like oh do we just get a project do we just get the money you know pay the bills and and, mm-hmm. and, and be able to pay pay ourselves wages and things like that but I think it's something that it's it's really important that your first project I think is something that mm-hmm. that does have some theory behind it and and some ideas and mm. concept and this scaffolding you talk about because I think that first project then sets the space that you operate in in terms of a practice and, and a mindset that you know that this is what we're doing this is where we want to go it's like setting a flag and that's it, like it is a bit and then and then once you yeah. had that first project out there I mean it took us like three years to get our first project you know yeah. um, built so and we've only just finished our first house which we've run through start, start to finish, finish you know the full the full sort of scope um, and that I, I suppose that allows you to then then yeah as you say raise the flag and say well this is what we're about this is what we're doing and, and you can then sort of start to occupy that space and and move in that sort of direction that was justin carrier and stephen posmus from kappa based in perth in some professional fields people have to choose one of two pathways the academic or the practical architecture has always had close ties between the two Jeeva greenaway is both the director of greenaway architects as well as a lecturer at the university of melbourne here he tells us about how real-world issues in the architecture profession influence the way students learn at university. The notion of theory in architecture is a beguiling question. As an architect who's always straddled both practice and an academic involvement in parallel, I think about these things quite a bit. And I'm often described in the context of my academic roles as a pracademic. And the idea of a pracademic is really bringing a practice lens into how we teach into and engage with the academy. And importantly, for me, the notion of a, of a theory and the theoretical and the abstract is something which isn't the way I see practice. I see it through the, the lens of creative problem solving is at the essence of what we do. And sometimes it requires different skill sets and opportunities around how we solve those problems and what skills and tools do we need to bring to the table. And for me, it's really underpinned by a philosophical and ethical positioning as opposed to a theoretical positioning. And so understanding our contribution, understanding our responsibilities, particularly in the the finite resources in which we use, we are complicit in terms of some of the degradation of our environment. So I think we have a responsibility to make the places and spaces we work with better than when we started, understanding the limitation of what resources we have available. These are the things which are important, but also the the ethics behind it is underpinned by a connection to people first and foremost. So it's a people-centred approach to design practice. And that the theory behind that really is foregrounding the importance of who are we doing it for and how do we create an environment which enables people to flourish, to solve some of the, the critical challenges that we're confronting. And I think we've abrogated our responsibilities, particularly around engaging with social issues. I think as a profession we haven't really uh, spoken to the, 
to the political dimension of, of our role to advocate and demonstrate and to role model and showcase the value of design thinking. So they are really my sort of considerations around the theory of architecture and I don't get sort of too you know, caught up in, in the abstract because I think what we do is it's a fusion of, of art and science in, in a sense and so it is very pragmatic but it also has the poetics of design. So how they start to blend is, is really important and the theories is, um, is not something that really you know, is the way in which I see our contribution in the academic setting. Certainly we can interrogate and, and look at and learn from some of the theoretical positions over time and, and how architecture has developed. But if we go back to the essence of architecture, it really is creating environments for people intersecting with the connection to country and to the environment and then really providing opportunities to think about how we conduct ourselves within our professional responsibilities and ensure that we make a better place for everybody. That was Jeffrey Greenaway, Director of Greenaway Architects based in Melbourne. When an architecture firm puts a project's practical needs above the importance of a concept, it might seem like they're putting less importance on creativity. But having this structured hierarchy of outcomes can allow a firm to focus on what is important as they tackle a project. Yvette Breitenbach, Director of Morrison and Breitenbach Architects, explains how theory can be useful when it's implemented into an architecture practice. First of all, I do think that theoretical frameworks are important. And I think that they are important for students because really uh, what they do is they introduce history, the history of architecture and architectural practice to students and I think they actually present and allow students to develop a framework of thinking, a certain rigour to their, to their thinking as it then applies to their design work. So similarly in, in practice we do bring a, a theory to our, our practice in, in the sense of we always look at um, what is the central idea, what is the central theme to a particular project and then we develop a set of principles which form that theoretical framework. They're the decision-making principles, they're the guiding principles, they are the inspiring principles, they are certainly grounded in practice for us in, or in the practical and that I think is probably the difference between coming to it as a new architect and an emerging architect and, and a more experienced architect is that probably the emphasis for Morrison and Breitenbach architects now that we've been in practice for here in Australia for close on 30 years is more practical. We embed um, a theory of sustainability in all of our buildings. We embed a notion of people-centered design that certainly comes from me, but we also certainly embed a notion of care in detailing which actually takes the concept through to completion. I wanted to say that the, the term practice applied to the activity of making architecture is a wonderful term because 
What we do effectively from one project to the next is we practice and we practice and we practice. We, through repetition, we develop and we refine ideas which may be expressed in a multitude of different ways according to the different projects. So, for example, how we actually respond to a site and a building that brings in natural light. That is, we repeat over and over again, how we capture the essence of place. That is informed by theory, but we practice it over and over again. That was Yvette Breitenbach, Director of Morrison and Breitenbach Architects, based in Hobart. When a client comes to an architect, they usually come to the table with a list of practical requests. Those requests might not have any relevance to a theory that was determined in an architect's practice before the project came through the door. Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects tells us what he tells students or staff when it comes to tackling the design of a project. Yeah, regardless of what what you call it, whether it's theory or some grander idea, like it's always been important to me. I always push this on the on the team as well that there needs what what is the big idea here, and that needs to be far bigger than the brief and the project. And especially when we mainly do houses, private spaces, there is a question of why even bother because what are the ramifications of these private spaces? And I always argue that whatever you build needs to have purpose or needs to have contribute something broader than what it is on its own. So every single project, I demand that, uh, that, that it contributes in some bigger discussion. How that works for other people, I think it's really up to them. I, I'd, I'd say there's two ways to look at it. If you're a young practitioner, I would agree with Peter Elliott and say, just start drawing. If you're a student, I'd say just start drawing. The amount of arguments I've had with students where they're just going, I don't have an idea yet, so I'm not going to draw until I have an idea. And it's like, well, then you're not going to do very well. Like, start drawing. And that happens to me a lot. Like, I want a bigger idea. Sometimes that refuses to come, so I need to start solving the problem. And while I'm drawing kitchens and bathrooms, I'm I'm scrutinising what, how does this contribute? And so an example of that is, you know, like the, the toy management house is really talking about how we address the client's problem um, of being a single mother and being sort of terrified of having to, you know, this was sort of thrust on her <laughs> while she was pregnant. She's suddenly going to be a single mother and how we could, how design could actually help her deal with the day to day and and to me there were bigger issues of equality and of feminism and she was also working full time so equitable access to work and how a house can somehow contribute to that that came out of drawing through the problem and dealing with you know a pretty standard housing brief so for younger practitioners and students I'd say just start drawing but be tough on yourself and try to pull something bigger out of that when you get to a certain stage in practice where you become really embedded in this monthly billing cycle of how the hell do I pay the bills, how do I pay the wages, I think that's where you have to have the tenacity to make sure that you're either operating within some bigger theoretical framework or that you're testing ideas in each project. Uh, and it's pretty easy to let that go and just just to draw. So I think you almost have to flip the, <laughs> flip the way you work as you get more experienced because you become more confident in just producing drawings. That was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects based in Melbourne. It might seem that theory in architecture is either something you can use or not. But when an architect purely reflects on their work that was completed before, 
they may very well be developing a theory on how to tackle their projects in the future. Here, Joe Agias from Cox Architecture in Sydney talks about how theory doesn't have to be viewed separately to the practice of architecture. I don't think the theory of architecture and the practice of architecture are siloed and different, and indeed one informs the other. I see it as a cycle as opposed to a one-way street in that the theory obviously informs the architectural thinking and the actual practice and making of architecture, but through the process of making and delivering architecture and engaging with clients and building buildings and so forth, engaging with tradesmen, understanding the whole process of how a building is delivered, that, in my view, informs the theory. So it is a cycle. Having said that, I think it's important for an architect, particularly a young architect, to have a view on things, to have a broad philosophy and a sense of the world and an idea of, you know, broadly, and a set of values, I suppose, about where the world is and where the world should go and the role that architecture plays within that. That, in a sense, is the bedrock on which the particular architectural theory is placed. But as I said, I think it's a cyclical move. And indeed, if you look at many architects, you can see ones where their work is evolved and changes over time. However, you can also see that a lot of the more successful architects kind of have a very clear sort of broad philosophy, but they always leave themselves open to renewal and, and, uh, and thinking. That was Joe Agias from Cox Architecture in their Sydney office. Design theories are interesting to play with at university. A student can bring two separate ideas together, then explore what results might come out of them. This is a valuable process to go through at university because you won't need to allow for all the implications that these ideas might have in the real world. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Allwood tell us about how students can consider theoretical study while they're at university and how they approach their work with philosophy in mind instead of theory. I think the lesson for um, students in this question is that you may not understand the theoretical basis for your work immediately and it may evolve over time. And to understand the theoretical basis of why you're applying to something, you, you inherently need to understand social context, history and political history so that you can make a decision on where your work and projects sit within that, which is quite complex when you're between the ages of 18 and 25. I would say for POD, what I think is that there's a philosophy embedded in the work that we do rather than a theory. Um, and that the requirements of place, context, client and sustainability are always a key part of the initial decision making on a project, and, but that each project is assessed on its own merits. I wouldn't like to say that we sit within a particular theoretical framework that we are constantly applying to our work. I'd say that it varies slightly from project to project. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking, what if you wanted to put us in a box, what box would you put us in? And I guess that would be regional feminist culturalists, if you want to be that specific. But I don't even know if there's a theory that relates to that. Yeah, I've got to agree. Uh, so um, for us, because we're working to culturally, um, remotely and regionally all the time, um, for us, the philosophy or having an understanding of culture, uh, history and people's preferences 
for ways of being and doing things is absolutely foundational to the work we do. For us, the client's needs come first. And like Shanine said, the way we practice is constantly evolving. I think if you're talking about experience versus theory, they're both toolkits and you need a balance. So having experience allows you to navigate the parameters and vast complexities of compliance, for example, and the competing requirements of a design brief, particularly when you've got a complex um, client group. But theory, on the other hand, helps ground a design and provides a reference point from which you can evolve design. And knowledge of, of theory, a, a good grounding or knowledge of theory, also informs why certain design responses may be more suitable for a particular client's needs or not suitable at all. But you can't have the theory without sufficient experience because otherwise you just produce unrealistic, non-compliant and completely unfeasible design. Yeah, it's a good point. It's interesting because let's say if we had a client that walked in the door tomorrow and wanted us to create a positive, positivist um, building, commercial building that had no relationship to human interaction experience but was all about materiality and uh, tectonics and digital or virtual realities we probably have to think quite hard about how that would fit into our current philosophy and where the human sits in all of that and so I I guess you know you could say that we do have um, embedded theories around humanism um, and critical regionalism as part of our work doesn't say we wouldn't do the other kind of work it would just mean that we would have to unpack what theoretically that would mean and on a philosophical level for the project and for the client and for us as architects and we'd probably find a way to subvert it to our own ends too (laughs) (laughs) yes probably that was Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood from Pod based in Cairns Like Shanine and Belinda, Peter Stutchbury works from a philosophical basis instead of theoretical. Here he tells us about his personal philosophy on architecture and how learning from strong examples can benefit an architect's work. I don't work on theories. I work on philosophy. And I think that we're born with a certain attitude towards philosophy. It comes from our parents and comes from our awareness. And our sort of, I think, our our very basic education, not school education, sort of life education. So I agree with Peter, but even before and beyond that, each person has a different makeup. There are some people who can only be theoretical. There are others who have to be practical, and there are others who work in between the two. I think that's very important. I don't think you should tell everyone to be either practical or theoretical, because it's not possible. You know, they're just, that's just not in their makeup. But what is possible is understanding how things go together in order to make a building, like in principle, but also understanding all the elements that constitute the image of architecture. So that's costing, it's builders, it's materials, it's scale, it's all sorts of things as a very not mathematical, but as a very sort of educational tool. Theory is, my theory is different to yours. And if you take on theories, you could be doing a misjustice to yourself. 
you know, what I th my advice to any architect or student would be is to find someone you admire philosophically and learn from them, like traditionally we used to do, you know. If you wanted to be a great hunter of kangaroo or whatever, you wouldn't go and find a really good fisherman. You know, they're a hunter, but they're a different sort of hunter. They can do fishing, but they can't do kangaroo. And it sounds like menial, but it's not. Whereas going and finding the hunter who's a known kangaroo hunter, he will give you the whole discipline that he knows that makes him a great hunter. So you'll find that a lot of the really respected architects have learnt from really respected architects. It's no coincidence. You know, like the guy who got the Pritzker, Doshi, his teachers, and he worked for Kabusier and Khan. You know, when Kabusier died, Khan said to Doshi, who am I gonna work for now? You know, people put themselves in positions to learn from strong teachings, not theoretical teachings. So I think, well, I suspect what Peter's saying is that don't get misled or don't get distracted by attractive theories such as look at this watercolour or, or um, you know, uh, I think the Doric column with a, you know, a classic facade is really cool. You know, how do you do that in a modern way? Look, maybe at this level, it's like, where'd that come from? You know, it's like, dare I say it, some modern architects work that you look at it and you go, well, I can't even fathom that. I can't work out what its structural principle is. I can't work out its mechanical principle, you know, like it, the way it, it, the mechanics of the building goes to, it, it doesn't have a language, you know. And I think the best poetry has grammar and it has punctuation, you know, it has all the things that make it prose and it has like form, it has all those things, not just neat words that rhyme. It has evocative thinking and all sorts of stuff. So I agree, but I'd step sideways and say you, you need to, you know, and it's a, it's a cliche thing to say, but you need to discover who you are. That was Peter Stutchbury from Peter Stutchbury Architects based in Sydney. Sue Dugdale places less importance on theory and more importance on built work. She believes that the success of actual built work can be more effective at informing a practice's theory. Sue also details her experience with theory at university and how she was able to get the most out of an understanding theory lecturer while she was studying. I've heard people say about architecture and looking at architectural meaning to let the theory come later. Um, I find this a really interesting point, an interesting topic for my own practice anyway, and in fact I'm in strong agreement with letting the theory come later. You could ask, does theory generate architecture or does architecture generate theory? I personally think the latter. There are many examples in history of theory generating architecture, but when the theory is the dominating design principle, the architecture often doesn't work. It can be painfully singular if you think about the pastiche of postmodernism put into practice, or at worst it can be fascist, like the early utopian visions of modern cities by some of our greats. <laughs> yeah, those sort of utopian visions that had modern cities as places of just enormous high-rises with freeways whizzing in between. And I think 
those sorts of visions were based on theories about life and living and architecture. They weren't, they didn't generate from practice. I also believe that good work doesn't need theory and may never have theory attached to it. I sometimes think that theory and writing for that matter about architecture is a separate endeavour and that practising architects are better leaving it alone. Getting back to um, students for a moment and whether students should be required to underpin their design responses with a robust theoretical framework, which has often been the case, I think, in recent decades in our architecture schools. It doesn't hurt students to do this at some point in their work, but I think it's a poor teaching strategy to insist on this for all projects. I've had the experience, and I think most of us have had the experience in architecture courses as students or teachers of seeing a really talented design student who's not particularly academic or articulate presenting an absolutely gorgeous gem of a design up on the wall in a crit session but being unable to intellectualise it. You know, so they can't talk about their process and they can't really describe the result. But to my mind this doesn't detract from the quality of what they've produced. So yeah, good design isn't always articulated either while it's been made or, or afterwards. So rather than a theoretical framework, I think students should be encouraged to underpin their design responses with a robust analysis of the values they're operating with and the design principles that they've brought to bear on their work. In past years, I've um, done tutoring and, and teaching in first year architecture courses. And often what's underpinned the projects that I've tried to get students to undertake is to see what values they're operating with and to understand themselves better instead of taking those things for granted. I think they'll be a much more informed architect by having that sort of self-knowledge and self-reflection. So when students look at the principles they do bring to bear on their design work, one of these might be theory, but it might also be many other things. It might be an understanding of materials, an understanding of human behaviour or of human responses to environmental cues or it might be about the culture of organisations they're designing for and how design can influence this. So the list is endless and I think theory needs to take its place amongst in that list. I have to um, confess to being a little bit anti-theory, especially probably in my early years. I did my final year at RMIT a very long time ago, having studied at UQ for four years before that. And it was at a time when postmodern theory was newly in ascendance in architecture and architectural teaching. I hadn't come across it before, so I was really excited and interested to see what it had to offer. So I approached one of the lecturers and asked to see the course notes to see what it would be about, because this was my final year, you know, I had to make the most of it. So he gave me the course notes, and honestly, I have to say, I wasn't that impressed. I thought it was a, a load of um, sort of irrelevant, kind of stuff, let's say. And I'm not necessarily anti-intellectual, you know, I like to read theory and to read about architecture, but what I negotiated with the lecturer was I enrolled in the course and I negotiated where I went and spent a year in the joinery workshop in the basement of the building making some furniture for the whole year, learning to use my hands and learning about materials and was marked on that. And because he was very open-minded about what theory was, he totally approved of this to his credit. That's, um, that's my delving into theory. That was Sue Dugdale from Sue Dugdale & Associates, based in the Northern Territory. 
Similar to Sue, Dick Jarman from Circa Morris Nun Architects wasn't particularly theory-focused while he studied. Here he talks through his experience with architectural theories and how they can be compared to architectural styles. I think applying a theory to a project is somewhat like playing a style. It's an intellectual style. It's an approach which, like styles, change over time, like fashion. And I think as we grow our personal theories change as we change. When I studied postmodernism was in and I railed against it, I hated it with a vengeance and thank goodness that deconstruction came in, it's something for me to hang my theoretical hat on and to explore and I felt that it much more resonated with the, the chaotic truth that I live in. And as I've grown older and sort of aged, I think I've calmed down from that angry young man and so my theories and approaches have changed. So I agree somewhat with Peter Elliott that to allow the, the theories to, to come later in, in ways that there's this idea that they will grow and develop and change. I mean, it's like somewhat getting a tattoo when you design a building and you know, you're committing to a certain thing. And if you, it might be embarrassing that the theory that you had earlier on adhere to and then to wish to change later. But I, don't, I think it's, we always think about how buildings go together and whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think you'll be applying a form of theory, an approach, and I think it's always much better to try and tease out and make conscious your decisions in a creative process. So I would say that you should always think about it, develop it, and apply it where you, where you think it's appropriate. That was Dick Jarman from Circa Morris Nunn Architects, based in Hobart. Students of architecture often begin their studies with great emphasis on the practical requirements of their projects. Slowly, they're introduced to theories that were used by architects through history and eventually encouraged to implement design theory in their own work. Damien Madigan from Madigan Architecture talks about how theory can help or hinder a student's understanding of design. I think it depends on what we mean by theory. I think what we see at um, university a lot is that there are students who are naturally gifted at being able to underpin their work on some theoretical basis and that basis informs and influences their work naturally. And then there are others who feel that it's necessary to make their work more clever than it might otherwise be for for whatever reason. And so they force the theory on their work. I think obviously that's, that's a difficult situation to be in and it doesn't automatically make for good architecture. And I, I tend to think that Theory is great if it's not forced or um, used as some sort of tool to try and make the the work cleverer than Mm. it otherwise is. I I often talk to students in the lines of evidence and I tie it back to something that I haven't heard directly from Timothy Hill but it's been attributed to him, the the architect Timothy Hill, Mm. Hill, where he has said to people, said to, to students, don't tell me what you're interested in or what you like, tell me what the evidence is compelling you to investigate. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what good theory is, no matter what sort of label you have it. It's saying, well, look, the evidence suggests that an appropriate response to this scenario is X, Y, Z. And I think that is something that should be brought to play in every architectural project, um, whether you're you know, an emerging architect or architecture graduate um, or not, that then if we're not trying to uncover what the evidence is in a project, Mm -hmm. then we're sort of designing um, spaces and forms 
uh, on some level of whim. That doesn't mean that the evidence has to be massive or the question has to be huge. It's, but it is a case of being inquiring about what the underlying you know, scaffold for, mm. for your lines on the page or on the screen are. Yeah. That was Damien Madigan from Madigan Architecture, based in South Australia. Theory in architecture is a useful tool. It can help an architect to express something in words, develop an idea beyond a concept, or to understand a problem. Architects have unique ways of developing their ideas. This is why there can be a variety of results when different architects are given the same brief. It's when theory takes us away from beneficial outcomes that it can be destructive. That's why firms that focus on practical issues can still achieve good results, even when their buildings might not look startling. Like an apprentice builder on a building site, if an emerging architect starts to address the simple issues first, this will help them develop solutions for more difficult briefs in the future. After hearing how 20 architects feel about what Peter Elliott said with regards to letting the theory come later, we thought it would make sense to let the person who made this statement have their say. Well, it is something that I've put a lot of thought on into as a younger architect. I I think, like, if you remember... (laughs) This is my 45th year in practice, so my time as a young architect is in the late 60s, early 70s, and it was a very different time. There was a lot more concentration on architectural history and on architectural theory, and in a much more formal kind of way. And so I I feel as in my generation, there's a very strong sort of history of architecture and the theory of architecture. What struck me as a young practitioner is I didn't know what to do with it. And I think this is something that just faces all design professionals, not just in architecture, that somehow you've got to make sense out of somebody else's theory to find your place among, among all of the confusion. And I found my way through it, and it's only from years of reflection that I realised what it was, is that through just doing the work, through just learning the ropes through the practice of architecture, it, it began to make more sense. And it was less about the theories than about my own, finding my own core values. And so for me, that's my kind of take on it. I just think the idea that, and I've always wanted to build, I've always loved the idea of building architecture. And so I guess my inclinations have been more towards the sort of practicalities of architecture than some kind of grander theory, even though now when I present the work or the practice, or I, I can yeah, be very solid about you know, the reasons we do things and what we do, but they are essentially based around what I refer to as architectural values rather than architectural theory. And I also observe just in the current generations, there is almost no architectural theory anymore. It's not taught, it's not talked about. We don't have critical debate. We just have pr- promotional material. <laughs> it's just the world we live in. And so to me, it's probably even more pertinent that people find their own pathway in architecture. Um, And there's many pathways. It's not like it's everyone's personality, it's everyone's own values, it's sort of what you want to do. But don't get tangled up too much in not being able to clearly articulate a theory because um, whilst it's it's important to the history of architecture that, that we have an understanding of why people do things, I did see a lot of really competent architects that are a little older than me when I was first starting out struggle terribly when, when a new theory came online, like postmodernism. They just did not know what to do. 
and in fact their, worse, their work got worse because of some attempt to align themselves with a fashionable moment. So it's, that's the hard thing, I think, is that as a younger architect, you're not caught up in some kind of um, stream of the current ideas about architecture and that you find your own way and that your, your own convictions are strong enough to withstand that. And to me, they're the great architects. They're the ones that have, have stuck to their guns regardless of what's going on around them and are very focused on just producing beautiful work. So to me, that's the story. You've just got to find your own convictions and stick to them. <laughs> and maybe, maybe it'll work out for you. <laughs> this has been the second episode of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests. Damien Madigan, Rod Simpson, Sue Dugdale, Kylie Shunans, Peter Stutchbury, Justin Carrier, Stephen Posmus, Nicholas Braun, Jane Court, Timothy Moore, Shanine Fanton, Belinda Orwood, Professor Philip Tallis, Joe Aegeus, Jeeva Greenaway, Rob McGoran, Joe Reese, Dick Jarman, Andrew Maynard and Peter Elliott. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Reese Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster and Daniel Moore. The AIA production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.